Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff used to be a podcast about space <laughs> and related subjects. Today we're back. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Mr. Jason Snell. Um, hi, Stephen. We are back. Surprise! We always said we would come back if there were things to talk about. And there's some things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And also, we want to promote that there's going to be forthcoming in this very podcast feed shortly, the next installment in our Apollo at 50 series, uh, which is what got us back together. And then it was sort of like, hey, maybe we should talk about. And that's why we're doing this episode. Yeah, here we are. Apollo 16 coming soon. Yeah. News coming today. News coming today. I, I want to... So originally, the inciting incident of all this was to talk about the SLS. Mm-hmm. And then as I was looking at the document, I said, I don't want to spring that on them right away. Because mm. I'd like I'd like to... I, I need to soften the blow a little bit before we get the... S. Uh, the idea of a liftoff episode starting with the SLS segment, it's too much. <laughs> you got to warm up to it or you'll pull something. That's right. So I just want to briefly mention that the Planetary Science dec- Decadal Survey came out it's fun to say uh the idea here is scientists tell nasa and other space organizations what they are the most interested in and the idea is this is what we think you should prioritize in terms of planetary missions because it's like how do you decide where to send probes and and rovers and things like that and the answer is the scientists get together and they make a list and they hand it off and they say here's what we think a draft if you will yeah sure kind of <laughs> i mean maybe behind the scenes that's what it is it's literally a draft it's like why does joe always pick europa so there's there's um there are broader decadal services this one is specifically the planetary science one and I wanted to mention, because the top priority is Uranus, the idea that um, we should send a spacecraft to Uranus and start planning that, um, motivated in part by all of the exoplanets that have been discovered over the last many, many years. And I know we've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Um, there are lots of ice giants in the exoplanets category. The most common kinds of planets are sort of like Neptune. Um, we have some of those. We have two of those nearby. Now, why Uranus, you're saying? And the answer is it's closer than Neptune, <laughs> so it's easier yeah, to get to. It is. And maybe we should understand it better, since it turns out these planets are quite common in the galaxy, mm-hmm. and we don't know a lot about them, because all we ever did was send one Voyager mission blasting past them on its way into interstellar space, and that's it. Like 40 years that's ago. all we've done. <laughs> it's been a yeah, long time. that's it. That's it. So that's that's number one on the list. And then number two on the list is Enceladus with its water fountains uh, shooting ice into space, uh, the moon of Saturn. And the idea there is they're recommending something that they made up a word for called the Orbilander. But it's just it's it's just an orbiter that lands later. It's it's so a spaceship is what you're the word you're looking for is spaceship. They want to send a spaceship to Enceladus where it will orbit and then land and, and land. camp out for a couple of years on the surface of Enceladus. That's what we call that a spaceship, not an orbit lander, a spaceship. Yeah. And we should say the survey is not like a binding document, right? It is it no. is not a, a course of action everyone has to stick to. But it is pretty influential, and prior recommendations, I was reading this article over on the Planetary Society earlier today, uh, missions like Curiosity, Perseverance, and the Europa Clipper all came out of previous work in the survey. And so 
even though it's not a, a sure thing that just because the survey says this is what we want to do, that's going to happen. But it does have a big say in how things could be shaped when you're when NASA and its partners are thinking about, hey, what's the next generation of exploratory missions? And I'm all for it. You know, like you said, there's a lot of these planets out there. We have these two that are relatively close to us in the grand scheme of things, and we just don't know much about them. And it is, you know, you, you look at, at what we've learned about Saturn and its system. We look uh, at Jupiter, what we've learned about its system. All the outer solar system exploration we've done has led to some really amazing results. And these two have been left out for far too long. Yeah, so... Now they're on the list. We went to Pluto. <laughs> we did. We did. Now, don't get your hopes up about Enceladus. I was thinking about this. It's like they, they, they imagine that if this thing comes together, it would be reaching Enceladus in about 2050. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not anytime soon. But you yeah. got to, this is the thing about space stuff is you got to start your planning now because it's yeah. a whole big mission and they got to get it funded and they got to, they got to, they got to design it and they got to build it and then they got to launch it and then it has to go a long way. So you got to start now. So this is why we have these lists. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking about that in the when New Horizons was in the news with the Pluto flybys. Like people have worked on this their entire careers, and yeah. this is how this starts, right? If if the ball gets rolling on these missions, there are people who are in school now who may be lucky enough to follow this for mm-hmm. a long time, or work on it, or run it, yeah, yeah, <laughs> or retire while it's still working. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, seriously. It's uh, the, the time skills here are vast. Anyway, uh, that's my story about the Planetary Science Decadal Survey. And that's why I think it's now time for the SLS segment. I don't have what it stands for in front of me anymore. <laughs> Space Launch System segment explaining geopolitics, mechanical systems, engineering achievements, news, and, and trivia. SLS segment. SLS, SLS, SLS. The SLS back temporarily i mean back back you mean do you mean back in the vertical assembly building mm-hmm. because they rolled it out to the launch pad and then they said forget about it and then they took it back yeah you hum so, it to the tune of back in the ussr from the beatles it's like back in the the vab if you've been following the news you know that the sls was rolled out on its fancy mobile launch platform for a wet dress rehearsal uh, this is a test that not only test the rocket itself, but the aforementioned mobile launch platform and all the ground systems that are used to fuel up the rocket. And you may think, Stephen, they've already done this. They did a green run. And that's true, but that was all using stuff at Stennis. And this test is just as much about the rocket as it is all of the ground support systems in Florida built for the actual launch. They have had three tries at this over the last couple of weeks. And on Saturday, just a few days ago, as we record this, Saturday evening uh, space news, uh, (laughs) you know it's going to be good news. That's when the press release comes out. And uh, basically they are going to roll the SLS back back into the VAB, back into the building, and have uh, a time there to upgrade and repair some things. And so there are a handful of issues here. Uh, there is a faulty check valve on the upper stage of the rocket. We should say, we should back up a second. The third attempt wasn't even a full attempt. They said, oh, well, there are these issues with the upper stage. We're just going to deal with the lower stage. 
and we'll do something with the upper stage <laughs> later. I don't know what the plan was. But even in moving the goalposts, they were unable to, to deal with this. So they got to fix that valve. Uh, there's, a, there's a leak on the mobile launch tower, uh, which they spent a bajillion dollars on building. They're going to use like four times. And there's uh, some upgraded capabilities that are going to come online uh, for the nitrogen side of things. And so quite a bit of work, it sounds like. They want to do that work uh, in the protection of the of the vehicle assembly building. So they're going to roll it back in there. And that leads to a big question of like, what what happens now? You know, you're, you're going to roll it back. The, the clock is ticking. Uh, and what, you know, assuming all this goes well, and it's going to take several weeks to do all this work, then what? What's next? Well, what is next? Shruggy guy emoji. No, uh, there are a uh, there are a few uh, possibilities here. So NASA did say on a press conference uh, on a call that they're going to roll back out for a wet test. That they've got to do this wet test before they launch. But there are some complications with the timing of this. Uh, first of all, you have other launches going on in Florida and mm-hmm. all of them take priority over the SLS. And so if another rocket is out going to launch, they have control of the range and the SLS basically has to stand by. They can't do anything. Right. There was a, there was one ISS launch of, of a uh, crew dragon. And now there's another one that is pending and they've made it clear that they get priority and that the ISS or the ISS missions get priority and other th- missions will get priority. And the SLS wet test will just sort of like, wait for its moment which makes total sense to me yeah uh there is uh a time window though in which these things can take place so there is the flight safety system that's basically the let's call it the self-destruct mechanism that all rockets have that if something goes wrong and the range officer needs to destroy the rocket if it's veering off course if it's doing something that's going to endanger people on the ground they can break it up that system, those charges have a a time period of 20 days that once that is enabled and has to be enabled if it's on the pad, you have 20 days before that has to be serviced again. And that service has to take place, you guessed it, in the vehicle assembly building. So they could fix all this stuff, turn on that system, roll it out, which takes a couple of days, and then do a wet test and say that's successful, say that they get that done within the window. If it's if it all goes quickly and well, which I mean, that would be the first time in this program, right? If something goes quickly and well, they could theoretically go from wet test to launch pretty quickly. Now, there are some, some factors there in terms of uh, where exactly uh, the Earth is, and they need to, to do it at certain times because they got to go out past the moon. There's lots of like orbital stuff they have to contend with, in addition to the range issues that you just mentioned. But it's possible they roll this out. Th- they roll this out one more time, wet test, and then launch within a week or so. What's probably more likely from the stuff that I've been reading is that they'll do a wet test, they'll return to the vehicle assembly building. And then once they have an actual launch window, uh, which uh, the next launch opportunity is from June 29th to July 12th, and then another one towards the end of July, that they'll park it in the vehicle assembly building and then roll out basically a third time for launch. So 
it it really seems like that's what's going to happen. I think a lot of the speculation of wet test and then launch immediately is really only valid if this all takes place within that launch window. But basically, mm-hmm. it's unknown. And so it's just, uh, it's a big mess. And of course, this rocket's been built for a while. The solid rocket boosters have been vertical for 16 months, and there's a timeline on how long they can be stacked. It's just, uh, is less than ideal right now for the SLS. Things have happened with the SLS, but again, on another level, it feels like the SLS is still doing what it's been doing the whole time we've been talking about it. Yeah. Which is coming along very, very slowly. Oh. Yeah, it, it's 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 tough. And so hopefully later this summer, uh, there is a third launch window in the beginning of June, but that seems to basically have been written off for a couple of different reasons. Mm-hmm. So what's what, what there is to pay attention to next is how do these repairs go and what's the timing like with all the other pieces in play? You know, since we stopped doing liftoff regularly, um, you and I occasionally just send messages back and forth where we link to stories from lift that we would have done on liftoff and said, mostly, I'm glad we didn't have to cover this story. <laughs> yeah. And this, all of these details about the SLS, I just kept on sending them to you and being like, Stephen, SLS segment, it's mm-hmm. crying out. Oh, and it's not fun. I mean, we laugh about, the, I laugh about this a lot. It's, it's, you gotta laugh because what else can you do? It's this, this whole project. Nothing is easy about it. It is just, even now, it's still painful. I hope they, I hope they get it there. I hope they get it there soon because we all paid for it. All of us American taxpayers paid for it, but uh, it continues to be a process. That's a very complicated thing. It's a complicated rocket, but it's tough. Speaking... This is why they do these tests, I guess. Speaking of complicated vehicles Mm. with a rough history... Oh, Starliner. Boeing Starliner. We don't have a... It's back! Like, so when we last left you as a podcast, (laughs) we were really wondering what was going to happen with Boeing Starliner commercial crew. Um, They needed to re... if If you don't remember, they needed to redo their orbital flight test because they did an orbital flight test and it didn't go well. And they finally decided um, they needed to do that again before they put people on this thing. And they got into the software and realized there were lots of software problems. And then there were hardware problems. uh, And there were, there was a lot that went wrong. And so they basically kind of went away for a while. Now they're back on the schedule. Very exciting. So an Atlas V, the rocket they were going to use, got used for the Lucy asteroid mission. They're like, we'll just repurpose that one. Yep, we'll take that. Thank you. <laughs> so the new Atlas V has arrived. Starliner OFT2 um, is back on the schedule for May 19th. Its rocket has arrived at the Cape, according to ULA, the suppliers of the Atlas V. Um, and they're going to use this for this next flight test of starliner yeah it's it's good to see this move forward you know we spoke about commercial crew in the very early days of liftoff years and years ago now the whole idea was for nasa to have multiple options when it came to getting crew to and from the space station Uh, especially in a world that back then tensions with russia were lower than they are now but especially now it's important to have have these options so uh, hopefully this OF2 mission, OFT2 mission goes off smoothly because uh, the next step would be uh, a demo flight with crew. And you know, hopefully those, those issues of the software control and then later the valves 
hopefully all that's behind the team at Boeing. Right. Absolutely. We wish them luck with this. It'll be good to see OFT2 get through with mm-hmm. flying colors so that they can start flying people to the ISS. That would be great. Yeah. I mean, meanwhile, SpaceX is just doing SpaceX stuff, right? They're they're doing their own launches uh, and they've had, uh, they have facilitated a launch for another company that has led to the all, first all private crew going to the International Space Station. So it's not the first all-private crew in space or in orbit. Those all have different definitions. Yep. Um, and the Inspiration4 mission last year was the first in orbit. And, the, and they're not the first private people to go to the ISS because there are people who've bought rides on the, um, on the Soyuz to get up there. Right. But this is all of those things put together, yeah, right? It's, it's the like fir- it's the first of all of it, first entire crew yeah. led by former NASA astronauts. So this is this is put together by Axiom, and uh, this is kind of their deal for now. Is they want to they have seasoned uh, astronauts head up these missions with three paying customers as the rest of the crew. Uh, eventually, Axiom has like these grand plans of like adding things to the space station. And then mm-hmm. when the ISS is decommissioned in the 2030s, taking those and like making their own private space station, commercial space yep. station, that's kind of their longer term plan. Uh, but for now they're in this business of, I think they have either two or three more planned and booked out for these private, you know, mostly uh, other than the, 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 the astronaut, you know, rookie people who just paid to go to space, paid to go to the international space station. Yeah, the argument is that the Crew Dragon it kind of flies itself, but if you're going to dock at the ISS, I think one of the conditions was that you have a commander who is um, checked out basically by NASA if you're going to dock at their docking port. And what they have, what Axiom has essentially done is has taken retired NASA astronauts, made them the commander of the mission, and then the other three seats are sold off. So Peggy Whitson, um, who would definitely be taken in an astronaut draft if yes. we were to ever do one, uh, will be the commander of their Axiom 2 mission. Also, something I don't know, um, because like NASA charges basically rent for being on the ISS for these commercial missions. Um, they had to delay their return by a couple of days for weather. And I actually asked Lauren Grush at The Verge on Twitter, and I didn't get a response back. But I am actually curious. I imagine it's in the contract or something. But like, okay, there's a weather delay. Do they charge them more, you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. for the extra extra couple of nights sl- sleeping at the ISS? Or is there a, a kind of like an overage thing where like, okay. You, you paid your fee. If you're delayed because of weather, it's okay. We're not going to charge you more. I honestly don't know. You know, if if I was delayed by uh, a storm at an airport and I had to spend a couple nights in a hotel, they'd charge me more. But maybe the ISS is not like that. Yeah. I wasn't paying. Maybe if I paid $55 million for a week and I needed to stay an extra day, they'd be like, it's it's cool. It's cool, man. Stay an extra day. Yeah, it's on the house. Yeah, exactly. And we just say, like, it's not just pure vacation. Like, you're paying a bunch of money. You get to be on a crew. You get trained, uh, but Axiom also takes up scientific experiments mm-hmm. to uh, to do on orbit. I mean, that's that's part of their deal with what they want to do eventually with expanding and then sort of breaking away from the International Space Station is research in orbit. So that's part of what they're doing too. So each of the crew members had a set of experiments that they were uh, in charge of. They had trained and were prepared to run. And uh, yeah, it's 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 a very interesting step, and 
if you had asked me four years ago, what's going to happen first? Because Axiom has been making noise about this for a long time. Like, first, all private crew at the station or uh, <laughs> uh, both commercial crew vendors being ready to go. I think I would have put my money on SpaceX and Boeing, but here we are. Very strange times. Strange times indeed. Um, and, and perhaps the strangest thing of, of all these times is that there is a war in Europe, for those who don't know, question mark, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. But there are a lot of uh, ramifications of this for space. Uh, Dmitry Rigozin, the head of Roscosmos, the Russian space agency, is a troll on Twitter. He does yep. a lot of things. Uh, he got to his job because he is a Putin guy. Uh, and so guess what? He is a company man to the end doing a lot of troll he was already a troll on twitter and now he is a russian nationalist troll uh, par excellence on twitter but there are real fallouts from this uh russia ukraine war the russian invasion of the ukraine um uh and it, they involve the mostly countries cutting ties with russia because they invaded ukraine so uh OneWeb, a company that wants to do satellite internet uh competitor to starlink was using Soyuz to launch its satellites from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. And they actually had satellites on the launch pad. This is a British company. And apparently those satellites are being held hostage now, as far as I can tell. they did, The launch didn't happen. I don't know if they're going to get them back or not. And they have now signed a deal with SpaceX, actually. Even though they're competitors in terms of Starlink and OneWeb, SpaceX is going to give them rides that means they have to reconfigure how they're launching and all of that because they're using a different vehicle, but they have completely changed their plans. Um, there is an, a space telescope that's already out in space called Spectre that had a, a German instrument on it. This is a Russian space telescope with a German X-ray instrument, and Germany put it into hibernation mode after the invasion. So they just basically turned off their instrument. Um, you can't have it. Uh, the ExoMars 2022 mission, which is a joint mission of the Russian and European space agencies, is basically dead, or at least on ice. It won't launch in 2022. It's possible that it might launch in 2024, but it would that would require the politics to change substantially in the meantime. Yeah. So that may be a mission that is basically back to the drawing board, uh, neutral corners. Could we put some of these instruments on a different mission kind of thing? It's mm -hmm. it's a uh, kind of gutting for ExoMars 2022, but that that's the you know the the one of the biggest um, immediate results of Russia invading Ukraine is the ExoMars 2022 collaboration basically being cut off. It really shows how, almost like how set apart the space agencies are. I mean, just just this week, the cosmonauts on the space station had a spacewalk, and like things seem to be, between the U.S. and Russia, in space. Like, things are definitely cool, but still sort of sort of working i get the sense that the because they, they actually had a we had a landing of a soyuz capsule with an american astronaut on it and basically the american uh space agency representatives were there in kazakhstan and took their guy and went their own way and the russians went the other way yeah but what they what the astronauts have said and the cosmonauts have said is we're professionals and when we're on the ISS, our lives are in each other's hands and we are working together and we leave all of the politics behind and we're just there to do our jobs. And then when they're back on Earth, they can deal with the politics of it. But that they've been, you know, I, my impression is that at the ISS, everybody is being very professional about the whole thing, which is great. 
um, because that is a, essentially a joint project of the U.S. and Europe and Russia, and they're not getting along right now. But um, and sorry, Canada has an arm there too. Like it's a it's uh, other than the Chinese, it's like a, truly an international space station. But the U.S. and Russia are the primary movers there. It sounds like that's everybody is committed to kind of just keeping their heads down and continuing the collaboration there because they kind of need each other. It sounds like uh, in the days ensuing, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine, that uh, NASA definitely started working on contingency plans. There were talks about like there are certain certain vehicles that could be used. The big the big issue is if if Russia were to decouple their stuff from uh, the American part of the ISS, the Russian segment is used for boosting and attitude control. So basically to keep the orbit from decaying. However, there are uh, vehicles available that could be docked to the ISS on the American side that would do that. So I, I think maybe all the contingency plans got an update and people started saying, what are our weak spots and do we need to do things in order to make sure that if the worst happens, we're able to keep our part of the station running? I don't think it's going to come to that, but I, I do think everybody realized they need to have those contingency plans. And it sounds like, and, and you know, in typical fashion, Elon Musk came out and said, oh yeah, we could help too. It was like, okay, dude, whatever. Okay. But um, <laughs> but I think that I think that maybe even there's an existing, is it a Boeing? There, there's definitely an existing vehicle that can dock to the ISS that could be docked and then used as attitude control. And that's a thing they could do. Yeah. It may have been the, the Cygnus. That could be. Yeah. So they're, they're, but they've had to talk about that because like, well, what if the Russians don't? Um, cooperate. What are we going to do? And the answer is, they have some options. It's not great, but they have some options. Now, in the longer term, the truth is, Russia is no longer a great space power. They're, they they have the ability to send people to space and have had a continuous presence in space for a long time now, and that's great. Their human spaceflight capabilities are impressive, but it's Soyuz, which has been around a very long time. The Russian Space Agency has been poorly funded for a very long time. Um, it isn't really creating a lot of new stuff. It's kind of in maintenance mode. They're doing enough to keep going, but they keep talking about new things that they're doing. And, and um, Eric Berger at Ars Technica always likes to highlight them on Twitter when he finds them because they keep like carting out the same thing that's in the works from like five years ago or 10 years ago or mm -hmm. 15 years ago and say, ah, oh, this thing is coming. And what, what he says is basically none of this stuff is coming. It's not. It's not real. It's a. It's kind of a sham. But Russia is such a proud country and proud of their space program that they keep doing it. The most likely scenario here in the long run, barring a dramatic change in the Russian government, which seems unlikely, but you never know. We live in interesting times, is that Russia will save face rather than you know scrapping their their uh, space program because they're not going to do that. They will pivot into a tighter relationship with the Chinese space program, which is really on the expanse. And they've got, they just had a bunch of astronauts up at their uh, space station for a while. And they just recently returned. They've got a space station in orbit. So Russia will probably pivot to closer relationship with the Chinese and participation in the Chinese space station. They had already been headed in that direction. Um, they will make it out to be a great new partnership with a, with a wonderful new partner. The truth is they will be the junior partner and China will be the senior partner in that relationship. And that is not something that they're going to enjoy, but that may be what they're left with at this point. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And the the atrocities in Ukraine seem to have no end in sight, unfortunately. And so I, I suspect that yeah. their 
relationships with other countries will only continue to uh, to degrade over time, as they should, uh, out of their actions. Yeah, it's a potentially a realignment of the global political order in a way that basically says the, that that Europe says we are going, and obviously the U.S. We are just not going to deal with Russia. Our new policy is going to be to try and distance ourselves from Russia as much as possible, and if that truly ends up being the case uh there will be no other thing to do for russia than to turn the other direction and face toward china which is doing lots of stuff in space so it's not a bad fit as long as china wants to play that game but um yeah it's hard hard to imagine um a lot of scenarios where the uh relationship between isa and nasa and and roscosmos is ever um more than the you know sort of minimum required mm-hmm. contractually at this point for a long time to come it's going to make uh, season 3 of for all mankind that much more <laughs> tense and interesting <laughs> i guess right it's like we thought oh remember first two seasons it's like oh remember the cold war remember when the russians were our enemies now it's like oh mm, mm, yeah that's coming back by the way i'm very excited about that very excited indeed i think so I think that does it, Jason. Oh, good. So uh, we'll be back in a year. <laughs> we'll be back at some point. Uh, no, no. Wait a second. We're actually going to be back very, very soon because 50 years ago right now, Apollo 16 was in space, which means if uh, we time it right during this period where Apollo 16's mission was going on 50 years ago, it'd be the perfect time for us to continue our series, which is still continuing by the way, we didn't forget about the 50th anniversary of the Apollo mission. So there's an Apollo 16 episode. Stay tuned for it in this feed where you found this episode. Surprise. Uh, because there will be another one all about Apollo 16 very, very soon. If you want to find links to the stuff we spoke about there in the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 167. Uh, thank you so much for listening. And uh, until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Stay tuned for Apollo 16. Bye, y'all.